Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. All right, let's get a check on what's going on in the world of retail. Well, I guess we shouldn't even call it necessarily just retail because Sears Holdings has become more than just a retail story. It is a finance story in a big way. And here to tell us more is Bert Flickinger, Managing Director, Strategic Resource Group. He can be followed on Twitter at Bert underscore Flickinger. All right, Bert underscore Flickinger. <laughs> underscore what's going on for us at Sears Holdings because they just got a loan, but all, a credit facility, uh, but they're also closing stores. They're closing stores, and the worry, Pim, uh, to your good insight, is same store sales are in a free fall, declining anywhere from uh, 7 to 10% on an annualized basis. And typically, when someone, another uh, department store chain, for example, Macy's closes stores, uh, Macy's same-store sales will increase in the surviving stores or, or the remaining stores. That's that's not the case with Sears. And as FD reports and uh, Credit Intel have, have reported very well for a long time on Sears Holdings, Kmart, and a number of others, it's, it's the ones that can't uh, rebalance themselves Beyond the assets. The other thing FD Credit Intel reported, though, is the average Sears um, lease pays out at about $5.50 a square foot. And on the open market, it's probably worth somewhere closer to $17 to $20 a square foot. So, like you said, oh, okay. Sears so a finance seven, okay, company. Okay, so 17 to 20 a square foot versus five and a half bucks. Yes. I think we can do the math. We could definitely do the math, and we're taking the math to Chictawaga, New York, former home of uh, George Westinghouse and Westinghouse and the intersection of the transportation border uh, between the U.S. and Canada. Sears is uh, closing its store in the Galleria Mall. Profitable store, very good customer count, but Sears can make millions assigning or flipping that lease or selling it back to Galleria as opposed to making a few hundred thousand a year as an operator of that store. At the same time, Sears gets to monetize its inventory and invest in other more profitable activities rather than retailing. Has Sears ever focused on online retailing in the way that Walmart says they want to focus on online retailing? That's the big opportunity uh, that you're referencing is Sears uh, is there online, uh, but not near where they need to be. And what we saw in our store checks across the country uh, from the Carolinas to California is Sears has tremendous quality apparel, particularly in Land's End. So the uh, finishings, the fit, uh, the fabric, the quality, the value, the color palette uh, clearly eclipses Target, um, is on par with Kohl's and the other, uh, Bonton, the other moderate uh, department store chains, but Sears can't get the customer count in. So you really have to go back in retail history, and we're both retail historians, is Arthur C. Martinez, CEO of Saks Fifth Avenue, Bob Mettler, president of Robinson May. They go in with Peter Georgescu of Young and Rubicon, create softer side of Sears, and get people coming in to buy apparel. The margins are two to three times higher. Uh, Sears wins financially. Mettler and Martinez saved Sears the first time 20 years ago. Lambert, to his credits, hired a lot of good people. If he could get the customers to give them one last chance, and with a $20 million secured letter of credit that can go to uh, tw- uh, $200 million, that can go to $300 million, this might be the 
the one last chance for Sears in 2017. But as Larry Sarr from F&D and Credit Intel said, if Sears doesn't do it this time, they got to start uh, selling the cash registers and cleaning out the cash drawers. All right, let's get through a couple of other retailers because we don't. I, I always want to get your expertise. Neiman, Marcus Group, Bergdorf, Goodman. What's going on there? Uh, PIM, the uh, bonds are really struggling. Same uh, FD report, credit Intel. The bonds have traded the uh, mid-70s or lower. So while Sears is trading a triple C plus, uh, Neiman Marcus Bergdorf's trading a triple C. And with uh, the Trump uh, New York White House, it's really tough to get into two of their most profitable stores, Bergdorf's Men's and Women's on uh, Fifth Avenue. Uh, so uh, that that's uh, really problematic, especially after losing almost half a billion dollars in the third quarter. Tell us about J. Crew. J. Crew uh, uh, fall. Survivor? Uh, it's it's going to be tough. They they went from the penthouse to the basement in just a few years. Uh, probably got enamored uh, with beach houses. Uh, the quality is uneven in the stores. The inventory is wrong. The color palette of what's selling isn't uh, always right in stock. Uh, but never bet against Mickey Drexler, seminal genius of design and retail, uh, and say, same with Jenna Lyons. So uh, we're hoping they come back, uh, but they've dug themselves a, a big hole. So it really depends on the vendors there as well. But 99.9% of the vendors supported Sears. Hopefully they'll support J. Crew and Neiman Bergdorf too. Tell me about what's going on with JCPenney. Is that the turnaround that's working? It's the turnaround that's working because they uh, threw out Bill Ackman and his proverbial carpetbaggers from Pershing Square that didn't know the detail and rhythm of retail, left Penny on death's doorstep. Another Saks alum, Steve Sadoff, ex-CEO, comes in, teams up with Mike Ullman. They create a dream team around Marvin Ellison, who uh, got trained uh, by one of the other seminal geniuses of retail, Frank Blake. And Penny, uh, partnership with Sephora, they've got uh, 500 more stores to do for perspective. Sephora on the Champs-Élysées attracts as many visitors in Paris as the Eiffel Tower, and the Eiffel Tower has longer hours. Co-exclusive with uh, with Disney, Penny.com's building, Penny Homes building. So Penny is a big comeback, as is uh, Toys R Us, and both of them uh, were left for dead, both the bonds uh, and the credit ratings just a few years ago, and it's it's great to see those Rocky Balboa-type comeback stories. Marvin Ellis at JCPenney doing the job. The stock is up more than 26% this year. Marvin Ellison's the Rocky Balboa of retail, retail uh, or, or uh, the Bob Townsend at Avis. Uh, we we try harder and they win. I want that maybe, you know, maybe you can print that as a banner for the, for the new year. <laughs> Tell me about what's going on now at the Macy's because, uh, of course, that is a continuing story. Macy's a uh, continuing story, uh, clo- uh, closing f- uh, 100 stores. The uh, Macy's International and Macy's Bloomingdale looks like it has high potential. Uh, Macy's has more fashion resources. Uh, Bloomingdale seems to be hitting on all cylinders. As we were go- uh, going through Nordstrom stores, they seem to be having a struggle uh, with their associates shifting sales, particularly in the shoe department, to Nordstrom.com. So the commission salespeople got less money. They were interviewing at Bloomingdale's. We saw the same thing at the Neiman Marcus stores in Chicago, uh, California, and, and elsewhere. So so it seems like uh, Bloomingdale's and Macy's is recruiting the best of the brightest in a shrinking sector, and ultimately Macy's Bloomingdale's is the consolidator in the winter. All right. Well, that's Terry Lundgren at Macy's. The shares of Macy's up about 4% uh, this year. With Jeff Uh, Jeanette and Karen Hogave, uh, very good leaders. Uh, Quick 10 seconds. Kate Spade, get bought or not bought? We'll get bought. Uh, It's selling in Paris. It's selling in Pasadena, California, and every place in between. People love the brand. 
Thanks very much. We love you. Thanks a lot. Bert <laughs> Great Flickinger, to team up. Managing Director, Strategic Resource Group, talking about all things retail. Washington, D.C. on January the 21st. Well, it will be a day after the inauguration. What will the district leaders wake up to? Here to tell us more is David Howell. He is the executive vice president and chief information officer for McInerney Associates, based, of course, in Washington, D.C., which is uh, home to Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 HD2. David Howell, thank you for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you. you. You are a veteran of the real estate uh, industry in the district and in the region. And I wonder if you could describe for people that are not familiar with it, what is the biggest mistake we all make about new administrations coming to Washington? Well, I think there's a general um, misperception uh, that there's this avalanche of new people that come to town that provide a huge shot in the arm for our real estate market. Um, and that historically has not been the case. We don't think it'll be the case this time either. Um, it'll be a boost, but it's not a it's not a boom. And it's not a boom because just the numbers of people that will turn over in the new administration, they're not necessarily going to have the money to buy new homes. Absolutely. You know, there's roughly 4,000 presidentially appointed jobs. Um, and first of all, they don't all happen on day one. It can take as long as 12 to 18 months to fill all those positions. Our experience shows, and even thus far uh, with the new Trump administration, roughly half the people that will fill those jobs already live in the Washington area, and roughly half the ones that are coming from out of town um, are going to rent rather than buy. So every sale is a welcome one. We we treasure every transaction, um, but it's generally not enough to move the needle in a major way. 50,000 homes are sold annually in the metro uh, D.C. area, and you've got a population of anywhere from 680,000, and then it swells to well over a million uh, every day when commuters come in. Tell us some of the areas of Washington, D.C. that you see are thriving and improving, albeit without the effects of a new administration. Sure. The the district itself, that market has been incredibly hot, where the suburban markets have not been quite as hot. So the immediate surrounding counties um, and cities, City of Alexandria, Arlington, Fairfax, Montgomery County in Maryland, uh, Prince George's County, they're all doing fairly well, but nowhere near as hot as the district. The district's been our hottest market for the last several years. Um, Why is that? Um, I, I think, first of all, the district's done a very good job in um, sort of reorienting themselves to be more attractive um, to businesses. Our, like most other major cities, um, we have enormous traffic issues, and I think people are making quality of life decisions that they want to live closer to where they work and not have to deal with the enormous uh, commutes that sometimes suburban drivers and commuters have to deal with. Um, and the district's just become a very hip, cool place to be. A hip, cool place to be. But you say that new construction is not keeping up with household formation. Why not? Well, it, first of all, we've got a, a lack of land. Um, like, again, most other major merge, urban areas, um, it's just tougher to find places to build. Um, and it's, it's a challenge uh, to get development through. Um, all the jurisdictions have fairly long development processes to go through. And based on the studies that we read, um, there's roughly a, a shortfall of 50,000 household units um, to keep up with household formation over the next five years. So that contributes to an ongoing shortage of supply, particularly acute in the district. 
All right, so you've got tight inventories. Talk about the expansion of public transport and the rehabilitation of public transport in the district. Well, it's it's hugely important in our metropolitan area, um, and as some of your listeners may have heard, our metro system has had some challenges of late. Um, You're being had, diplomatic, yeah, <laughs> trying to, which be. is appropriate um, for being in Washington. Yeah. <laughs> um, we've and so metro's kind of got to get get its act together. Um, but I, frankly, I think one of the interesting things we've seen, I was talking with one of our agents a couple of weeks ago, with the safe track issues, um, and those are the 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 taking lines down for a period of time where they're having to do extended maintenance. People are changing how they're commuting. Um, one of our agents was saying that a lot of her clients have actually just switched to Uber uh, because it's more convenient. And when Metro is back uh, in its rightful place, um, they may have a bit of a battle getting some of those riders back. As they say, necessity, the mother of invention. Tell us about yeah. interest rate increases. Will that really have a, a change on, on whether people buy or don't buy in, in the area? It certainly does have some impact. You know, with the, with the rate increase of roughly a half a percent um, over the last six weeks or so, that's taken about 6% of buying power away from prospective purchasers, and that certainly um, is a factor. But we've also learned that interest rates are a factor, and whether someone buys a home, they're not the factor by any means. When our company started over 30 years ago, interest rates were 17%, and people still bought and sold homes. So it's, it's not just that number. But there's no doubt that on the short term, it has both a real and a psychological impact. When you lose that buying power and you see rates ticking up, um, one of the things it does is it gets some fence sitters off the fence and into the market um, before they feel like they can get priced out of the market because rates are too high. But because we've had rates low for such a long period of time, we don't really know where the psychological wall is. Um, if it's 5%, 5.5% if rates get that high, if buyers finally really get discouraged. But right now, uh, let's face it, 4% interest rates, which is where they are right now, is still, from an historical perspective, very low and very attractive. Thanks very much. David Howell, Executive Vice President, Chief Information Officer, McInerney Associates. Twenty sixteen, the year marks the beginning of the end of hedge funds as we've known them. So writes Catherine Burton. Kathy Burton is our hedge fund reporter, joins us now from Bloomberg News. Kathy Burton, thank you very much for being with us. You're so welcome. So tell me about Agonistes. This is uh, really from Milton. It means uh, it's about Samson wrestling with adversity and trouble. You say now the title of your uh, your report is Hedge Fund Agonistes. What's going on in the hedge fund world? Well, the hedge fund world is finally, uh, or investors are finally realizing that they shouldn't be paying managers two and the uh, normal two and 20, as it's known. Uh, basically, the managers get rich off the management fees, even if they don't make money for their investors, which they haven't been doing for uh, several years now. Is that why the theme, at least for Robert Mercer's, uh, the hedge fund uh, titan Robert Mercer, the theme for his holiday costume party was villains and heroes? No, I think that's more of a political uh, uh, political comment. But uh, he he's one of the managers who's actually managed to make money uh, all these years. All right, so if he's managed to make money, then isn't it just a natural selection in which those that don't won't have customers and those that do will have customers that are willing to pay the fees, or not really? 
No, that's exactly what's happening now. We're seeing uh, many more closures um, than we have in the past. Uh, this year looks to be on track to have uh, the most closures since 2008 financial crisis. And uh, people expect uh, uh, people expect that the industry could be cut by as much as a quarter over the next year. As much as a quarter. What what take the, what what took the investors so uh, so such a long time to actually do the math and and discover that they weren't making the money they thought they were. I think what happened is that uh, a lot of the money that came in came from pension funds, and they didn't start investing until relatively recently. So they uh, and they're very slow moving. So they sort of started to invest just as returns overall started to fall. And so it probably took them five or so years to to get into the program to figure out it didn't work and then to get out. That's what's happening now. Well, you document that public retirement plans in Kentucky, New York, New Jersey, Rhode Island, they pulled the plug. They pulled money, rather, from uh, hedge funds, as did uh, the State University in Maryland and other endowments. That's correct. And there are other people that are, um, if they're not cutting their allocations to hedge funds, they're definitely cutting the number of managers they use. Uh, The University of California is doing that, and they may also end up cutting their exposure as well. If they continue this trend, what kinds of hedge funds will be left? Just those that perform well in the past or have a track record that is measurable in decades? Uh, yes, and I, I think that it's going to be uh, the smaller funds, too, a lot of them that are more nimble, that are able to make money. Uh, a lot of the funds that used to be good, are um, their returns suffered as they added assets. Now, those assets also translated, as you described, into fees, and those fees translated into things such as higher real estate prices in New York City's condos in the sky. Uh, that's absolutely correct. Um, the, the number of billionaires on the Forbes 400 has grown uh, a lot amongst the, the hedge fund set, and those people have um, certainly driven up prices of real estate in certain buildings, and uh, certain art. Yeah, well, you give the example. In 2006, 11 hedge fund managers were in the Forbes 400. Fast forward 10 years, that number climbs to 27. That's right. right. And is it as much a public relations disaster for the hedge fund industry as it is a performance issue? Uh, Yes. That is true, because uh, people got tired, especially in the public pension funds where there's uh, unions and uh, teachers and firemen, and they don't like to see these guys spending a lot of money in their conspicuous consumption um, when they're not getting much in the way of returns. So they're actually connecting the personal behavior of the hedge fund manager with the returns that they see when they're just looking for an increase in the amount of money they make. Exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, now, just to follow up on these apartments, these trophy real estate investments, I wonder if you could just tell us about uh, Steve Cohen, uh, who is now running his own family uh, office. Just describe, because he's he's not a dumb bunny. Uh, what He bought, what, 9,000 square foot duplex uh, at One Beacon Court. Uh, that's correct. I think he paid about $20 million for it. So even if he sells it at the highly reduced uh price of 67 million he'll still be making a lot of money but at one point he thought he could get 115 million dollars for that apartment 
but now I guess uh, it's a bargain at 60, uh, $67.5 million. <laughs> exactly. So he'll still make a huge profit, but not quite as much as he thought he was going to make. Just give you about 10 seconds. Are there any hedge funds that are, that are combating this whole issue and getting ahead of the game? Uh, certainly some of the quantitative guys are raising money, um, and people like Renaissance Technologies is still putting up huge returns, well, although they don't take a lot in the way of outside money. But Thanks very much. Kathy Burton, our hedge fund reporter for Bloomberg News. You can follow her on Twitter, at Burton Kathy. What to do with your money in 2017? Perhaps nothing, but maybe not. Maybe the dog of the Dow theory is the way to go. Let's find out from Doug Sioka. He is the chief executive officer and partner at Cavar Capital Partners, helping to manage a little bit more than half a billion dollars. He's based in Leewood, Kansas. Doug, great to always speak with you. Um, dogs of the Dow. Why don't we start there? Because that may highlight why the Dow Jones Industrial Average is up nearly 14% this year, while the S&P 500 is up a little bit more than 10%. Yeah, Tim, thanks for having me on, and Happy New Year. And I think it's been interesting. There seems to be a lot of tax loss selling that's taking place in certain sectors of the Dow and the S&P, but you know, whether it's in staples or healthcare and what we are calling the trailblazers of the changing face of retail, right? Those companies that focus on direct-to-consumer as opposed to same-store sales, seems like some paradigm shifting has caused a little bit of consternation in certain sectors that um, we think offer some pretty good opportunity going into next year, right? So much of what we're trying to determine from an asset allocation perspective is, you know, what areas of the stock market have pulled forward the prospects of economic and earnings per share improvement ahead of it actually materializing. And Can you give us some details? Tell us some industry groups, particularly, I know, industrial stocks. Well, industrial stocks, financials, and energy post-election have been on a parabolic uh, scream higher, which is great. And I think that it is embedding some optimism that was dormant for a period of several years. And you know, whether it's because the, the Fed is going to have the green light and be buttressed by underlying economic growth, that it feels that it can raise rates progressively, and that's a very positive, immediate impact for profitability of banks, what are this functional fiscal policy that we're hopeful will make its way through the legislative process is going to be great for industrial uh, companies that have seen uh, a pretty significant ebb in their order flow, um, or whether it's it's the energy stocks that now feel like, okay, shoot, the U.S., let's join OPEC. I mean, we've got enough natural gas. We've got enough energy. If if Obama had, had coined himself the energy president and, and uh, we've had all these discoveries, can Trump then get it effectively transported through pipelines where it can actually make a material improvement in the economy and bring back the whole manufacturing base that we feel may have been abandoned? So well, those well, three you, sectors. I, I was really just going to say, strong. Doug, just to break in on, on energy, I didn't know, I, I just recently learned this, that the United States is on a tap to pump about 8.8 .8 million uh, barrels of oil a day, correct? I mean, we're somewhere around there. Right, eight, somewhere eight, around eight there, eight to correct. Nine mil now, but we're, and that was the level that it was about two years ago because, of, of course, the price of oil having come down, a lot of uh, wells have been shut in and so on. But we're, doing, we're producing that amount of oil 
with the, a third of the number of rigs. So the technology, I mean, this just underscores the technology change that has uh, gone on in the, in the energy business. I agree, and it's fascinating, and, and I think that was one of the reasons that the, the predictions when they were in place, you know, famously Dennis Gartman, I think in February, said oil would never be back to 40 in his lifetime because it wasn't that there was a lack of demand. There was an ebullient amount of or, or, or an amazing amount of supply, and that supply was going to be um, drilled for and mined so efficiently that there would be no reason to see such upward pressure on prices at any point in the future. So, yeah, I think that, that plays a big part. And the technological progression and efficiency stretch is across industries, which is really interesting as much as the technological and the innovative components are an offshoot of the tech tech industry, which has been one of the main laggards after the election because of this, um, this theory that Trump hates tech because of a lack of very um, prominent well, he certainly doesn't hate Twitter during the campaign. No, he loves Twitter. Yeah, so I, I all right, so having so looking at let's say you've got an asset allocation model and you're saying to yourself, "All right, now that I've made some gains in energy stocks, I've made some gains in industrials, financials, and I need to rebalance, right? This is my discipline. I'm going to rebalance my portfolio. Right. What do you have to add to do the rebalancing? You have to add more tech. You need to have more tech, you need to add more health care, and you, you, I think you have to double back on some of the staple stocks, no question. I mean, I think this, there is an overreaction in the market to some perceived threat of unwinding the globalization efforts that tech has really been the primary representation thereof. I think there are unfounded concerns about the restrictions on intellectual capital mobility for tech companies as well with visa threat propositions and things of that nature that I actually think this is far more bark than it is bite. And I think for Trump to really extract the benefit of becoming the pro-economy president, he realizes that tech has to be a sidecar to that propulsion. All right. So if you are unbalanced in your mm-hmm. asset allocation, take a sure. look at what you take a look at technology, take a look at uh, at healthcare, and also biotechnology, I would imagine, is part of that. No? I, yeah, within healthcare, I mean, everything throughout the vertical, Tim, um, as it relates to producing drugs, purchasing drugs, and consuming drugs, I mean, that, that, that vertical has been under assault, whether it starts with Martin Shkreli and, and then catapults forward with the EpiPen tobacco, and um, then we're trying to understand what we're in the, in the, in the process of PBM really fits and who's really yeah, the pharmacy for benefit management companies. Correct. Yeah, so that, we, that were just talking, we were just talking. I believe we were just talking recently about United Health, and they have an Optum unit that accounts for about forty percent of their profits, and that is basically a technology business, and it has a, a pharmacy benefit management uh, division within that. Tell me about bonds. If you have gains in bonds, should you take them, or should you wait? Well, if you have gains in bonds, and you probably had a very strong bond portfolio given the pullback in right. bond, bond prices that's taken place over the last six or seven weeks, we think there's a lot of opportunity in, in the fixed income market just because you, you, had, you had a pullback very similarly to what took place 
during the taper tantrum of 2013. But it has provided entry points that, on a spread basis, we've not seen really sustainably since maybe before the Great Recession. So we still think that, again, given that there's been some enthusiasm attended to these rips in some of these market sectors, it has been equal and offsetting with the drubbing that's taken place in some of these bond sectors. There's a lot of opportunity, almost like a dogs of the Dow theory in fixed income, particularly in tax exempts, or tax exempts have, have kind of been a double whammy in so much as people say, okay, rates are going up, so we've got to get out of our current bonds as well as any bond surrogates, and taxes are going lower, so the benefit tangibly or, or, or quantitatively of that exemption is going to fall. So if you see that backup multiplied in the muni space, we still think that, it's, that there's some very good value in there. Thanks very much. Doug Sioka is the chief executive and partner at Cavar Capital Partners, joining us from Leewood, Kansas. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.